0: Hello and welcome. I'm Melissa Studdard, and I'm your host for tonight's episode of Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community at Teferet's website. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal and enjoy beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is fabulous poet, trauma chaplain, and creative writing professor Martha Serpice. Surface is the author of the poetry collection Côte Blanche about which poet Richard Howard states this is how George Eliot if she had written poems as compassionate as her fiction might have proceeded as a native of South Louisiana, Serpas also remains active in efforts to restore Louisiana's wetlands, and her second collection, The Dirty Side of the Storm, which the St. Petersburg Times calls at once a love song and a dirge to a landscape being swallowed by the waters that define it, is rich in imagery and the lyricism of place. Serpas' work has appeared in magazines such as The New Yorker, The Nation and Southwest Review, as well as in a number of anthologies, including the Library of America's American Religious Poems. She holds advanced degrees in English from several universities and a Master of Divinity from Yale. And since 2006, she has worked as a hospital trauma chaplain. For many years as an educational consultant and as a poet in residence, she facilitated the teaching of writing to children in New York City classrooms. She has also taught at several universities and currently teaches in the Creative Writing Program at the University of Houston. Hi, Martha. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I understand you've had a pretty busy day. <laughs> I did, I did. Okay, well, um, I want to kind of start by talking about titles with you. So um, what are the clean and dirty sides of the storm? And I'm asking you that both literally and metaphorically.
1: Okay, um, well, literally, the right side of the – the upper right quadrant of the hurricane is the the strongest part of it wind-wise. But the whole right mm-hmm. side is is where the water gets pushed up into the land by the circulation uh, of the storm. So being on the dirty side means being on the side that that gets the water. And um, if I were home in uh, in southern Louisiana with a hurricane approaching, um, lots of people will be hoping that we're not on the dirty side because the water is much more destructive for us than the than the wind. Okay. Okay. And so, um,
0: it's such an interesting choice of a title and there are obviously some clear reasons that you chose it, um, but what are some of the more subtle reasons?
1: I think I think that there's um that often what appears to be detrimental or, or destructive um to the greatest degree is not actually um what turns out being the most harmful and more subtly perhaps not even harmful, but what brings the most change is not what um what appears first to be sort of life changing
0: mhm. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. And also, just for anyone who doesn't know, your other collection, your first collection is called, am, am I saying this properly, Cote Blanche? Yes. yes. And what
1: Cote does Blanche. that mean? Um, Cote Blanche was the original name of the settlement where I grew up, um, which was about 80 miles south of New Orleans. And uh, it literally means white coast. And the origin is thought to be a priest who was approaching by boat to come in um, and visit the people who lived there because there were circuit-riding priests. There weren't enough um, priests around to place a priest in every one of these four-flung settlements. So the priest was approaching by flat boat and saw all of these whitewashed, what we call shotgun houses, um, lots of people call um, houses in their area that because you can shoot a shotgun through the front door and it goes through every room. Through. Um, <laughs> so he, he sees these whitewashed houses and it looks like a blur, like a white coast. And so he called the settlement Cote Blanche.
0: Oh, great. That's a beautiful visual image. Um, well, one of the, just sort of in relation to what we're talking about, one of the things that I really love about your poetry is that it honors the messy aspects of life and love and spirituality, not just what is clean or ideal. And mm-hmm. um, one of the passages that really stuck with me the most regarding this is from the poem, I'll Try to Tell You What I Know. And mm-hmm. uh, I want to see if you would like to share that poem with our listeners. It's on page 33 of Coach Launch. Sure.
1: Oh, great. Thank you. Let me flip there. I'll try to tell you what I know. Sometimes it's so hot a thistle bends to the morning dew and the limbs of trees seem so weighted they won't hold up moth anymore. The women sit and swell with the backwash of old family pain and won't leave the house to walk across the neighbor's yard. One man picks up a shotgun over the shit hose from a pen of dogs. One boy takes a fist of rings and slams the face of the kid throwing shells at his car. That shiny car is all the love his father has to give. And his mother cooks the best shrimp étouffée and every day smokes three packs down to their mustard-colored end. One night, the finest woman I ever knew pulled a cocktail waitress by the hair out of the back seat of her husband's new El Dorado Cadillac, and knocked her down between the cars at the Queen Bee Lounge. She drove the man slumped and snoring with his hand in his pants home, and not a word was said. I'll try to tell you what I know about people who love each other and the fear of losing that cuts a path as wide as a tropical storm through the marsh and gets closer each year to falling at the foot of your door.
0: Thank you. That is such an absolutely compelling poem. Um after I read it, that image of the the, cock, the woman pulling the cocktail waitress out of the car by her hair and sort of slamming her down, it, not just the image uh, stuck with me, but that it was one of the finest women I ever knew. Um, that whole, you know, we don't think of someone fine doing something like that, and I love that um, complexity there, and I wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit
1: well, you know fear isn't um fear visits everybody uh even the most genteel and refined um and so I had this um well i have to confess this is this is, the base of this is is a, a true story the details are are changed and and she mm-hmm. was one of the finest women i i ever knew uh eventually um married a senator um
0: in a second mm-hmm. marriage,
1: um, and so um, very, uh, very cosmopolitan and gentle and refined. But um, mm-hmm. when faced with that um, fear of of losing her husband, she um, she performed this very act.
0: <laughs> well, can I ask you? Do you also mean fine in the sense of um, like? You know kindness and morally fine, or do you mean it only in the sense of refinement and and like um you know high standing in the community
1: I think um I hope it reads in in all of the senses both mm-hmm. both um refined bo- um, somewhat delicate and also um in in my day fine with uh, a euphemism for really attractive mhm,
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. well, that's great and i I did read all these different aspects into it, and that's one of the reasons I think the um the image is so compelling to me, and I didn't really realize it until we started talking about it just now, but I think one of the things that I really love about that is the feeling of um you or the narrator of the poem depending on you know i would have said the narrator but since you told me that uh you know that it was an actual event that that there's a sense of no judgment there and it's so beautiful it's like you know i witnessed this woman do this thing yet i still think of her as one of the finest women i ever knew it's not like oh she's tarnished now, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's a, kind of a thing that I see through all of your work, this, you know, and it relates to what I was saying about the, you know, the sort of the messier aspects of life and, um, and all of that, so um, you know, another poem that I like that sort of brings in this complexity in a completely different way is The Diener, which is, um, was published in The New Yorker, so it's not actually in either one of your books because I believe it came out after your two books were published. Um, but are you at a place where you could possibly pull that up and read it? Because I would love for our listeners to hear that.
1: Okay. I can
0: do that. Oh, great, great. I think, you know, now that I think about it, you can get to it from your website if you need to. Oh,
1: um, I just put my hands on it. Um yeah, it's the title poem of this um collection I have coming out in March. And uh actually, yeah, before
0: you uh, because that's one of the things I was going to ask you about um before you read the poem, would you tell us a little bit about the collection?
1: Um sure. There there are a number of poems that come out of my chaplain experience and there're mm-hmm. also um a fair number of poems that um continued to deal with the landscape in Louisiana and mm-hmm. I I see them as a whole in terms of that those liminal spaces where something is um something is disappearing and something else is taking its place um mm. in fact there's um uh, it's not an epigraph because I put it at the um at the end of the book but um I put this quotation from Augustine's confession. Uh In this world, one thing passes away so that another may take its place and the whole be preserved in all its parts. Um, and in both of those settings, it's really hard at the time to see that something, um, and, you know, in, in uh, a place of incredible loss, to see that something is going to um, grow there. It's going to come and mm-hmm. fill that space. Um but we know that's what happens. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the title mm-hmm. is the Beaner and, and sorry, it's a it's an unusual word. Um, a lot of dictionaries don't even have it. But I learned that in the hospital, it's the person who runs the morgue um, is mm-hmm. sometimes called the beaner.
0: And it's spelled D-I-E-N-E-R. <laughs> <laughs> right. Doesn't really
1: quite um, look how it sounds. It doesn't. Um and it has that, you know, strange die in the beginning of it. Um but it mm-hmm. comes from the German for servant. For service? For for servant. Oh
0: servant, okay, okay, great.
1: Yeah. So this is the deaner. We hated the early anatomists for showing us how fragile we are how God's image is composite. The liver, the bright bruise of a sunset, the thyroid wrapped around our throats for luck. They saw our brains folded against our foreheads and knew our hearts pumped dumbly on through the wash. And wily guts take the brunt of it, pushing to get rid of while we insist on taking in and taking in and taking in. Bears with heresy, that is, a choice, to reach the artist by testing the art, human suffering always the requisite cost. Change what you all of it the same, the teacher says, no new thing under the sun. What we make, let's make old instead, older than the first tool, which smelled much like the body, the first blacksmith must have thought, not quite not quite like displaced blood, but blood at home in its place among other parts in their places. And that must be how we began to confuse the power to examine and change with the power to create, to be discrete agents. Why we like to see ourselves as a whole, despite the deaner piling legs on a cot, despite the pruned artery tied and cut.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's really stunning. Um, and the imagery is stunning. And it. Like so many of your other poems, such a complex interweaving of the carnal and the spiritual, um, and like like humanity, like humans, like we are, um, you know the the passage that really um, kind of there's so much that sticks with me about that poem. But uh, the thing that I keep going back to is that passage. Um, that must be how we began to confuse the power to examine and change with the power to create. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> wow, I'd love to dig into that a little more and um maybe talk about what led you to to this poem.
1: Um, I actually um read a little bit about about the early anatomists and uh their sort of robbing graveyards in order to have bodies uh to study. So that's mm-hmm. that's where it that's where it began and I was um thinking a lot at that time about what it means to be um a creator. Mhm. What that how that um how that interplays with you know our central myth about about in the west about um, being created in the image of our creator, um and that being read as we are creators ourselves, and I was really pondering whether we can ever claim to have created anything um mm-hmm. in the same way mhm, mm-hmm. mm, that's really, really interesting
0: um you know one of the things that we like to sort of talk about and think about it to ferret is the role of creativity um, in spirituality and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that because I know I myself have like not really had faith in creativity at some times in the past where I just felt like um, maybe it was a little frivolous and I know it, this might make sense to you because I know you're a real activist and you go out and do this work to um, try to restore the wetlands. And, um, you know, so There have been times in my life where I thought, oh, my gosh, why am I sitting here writing when I can be out doing this thing? But then I come back and I say, no, this is important. So um, I wonder if you could address that a little bit.
1: Sure. Um, firstly, I'm thinking about um, the line, let's make it old instead. I was thinking about Pound saying "Make it new," and um, mm-hmm. really pushing on that. To, with respect to our creativity, human creativity, um, or we can talk specifically about about poetry or the fine arts. There's always this push to um, to create something that has not been created before. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: So, is that possible? And then, secondly, from a spiritual standpoint especially, aren't we also thinking about trying to go back and capture some essence, um, mm. some some core soul, spirit, um, and isn't that really searching for something old as opposed to what's novel and um, supposedly hasn't been created before? And so stunningly presented with the first
0: tool that smelled so much like the body. (laughs) I love that image. It's amazing. Um, Well, I know um, since I've brought it up about your your work with trying to restore the the wetlands, I did want to talk to you about that a little bit. I read your op-ed piece in the New York Times called "Our Life." between sea and soil, and I thought that was wonderful. And I saw that you also narrated a documentary, Veins in the Gulf. Um, I just wanted to see if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about your work that you're doing to try to help restore the wetlands.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you can't really see home um, except from exile, say, um, or except for bringing visitors. I know we all have that experience of... of, uh, Having people come to visit us and ending up going to places, uh, landmarks, museums, different activities that we haven't explored, even though it's our home. So, uh, a documentary filmmaker and I took a bunch of students I was teaching in Florida at the time to southern Louisiana, and I really got to see this this tragedy of coastal erosion through their eyes, and it it uh, was very very powerful. It wasn't that I wasn't um, aware of it. It wasn't that I wasn't concerned about it. But I just saw it in a very different way. And so that began the the making of the documentary, which is it is somewhat from a scientific point of view in terms of explaining what's happening. But it's more it's more from a cultural point of view and a spiritual point of view about um, the land loss. Exactly.
0: And I noticed you're not the only Again. poet involved with it either. There was also someone who was formerly the poet laureate for Louisiana um, involved in the documentary as well.
1: Um, I'm wondering if you're thinking of Darrell Bork, um, mm-hmm. but but not in the not in this doc, no. Oh, okay. It
0: must have been a different one that was connected to it. Um, I was watching a little stream of them, you know, how it'll link you from one to another. <laughs> so, oh, But that sure. is interesting that, that you're not the only poet who um, has taken this up as a cause and is working with it.
1: Um, oh, sure. Well, your
0: poetry is so attuned to the rhythms and the images of place mm-hmm. and... Um, I wanted to see if maybe you would like to read a poem that that relates to this um, and relates to what we're talking about and the work that you're doing. Um, I kind of had in mind "Decreation," um, but it's also a very long poem, so I'll leave it to you whether or not you want to read that one or a different one or part of that one. Um, I would love to hear the whole thing if, if you feel like reading it.
1: Um, sure, I can. There. Okay, Decreation, and it has an epigraph from Simone Weil. We must be rooted in the absence of a place. One, on this fork of sandbagged and bunkered beach, plumes of oyster grass attend open water, and oil rigs blot the horizon. Between every two, one slightly smaller phase, more distant, a pen stroke blending heaven and the great gulf of earth. Material tides contend with offshore winds, turn deep charcoal and recede. Pink clouds drift awkwardly like erasures. A hand's width above the waves, a pelican, plumb with mullet below, defies these signs. Trawlers with their wings in egress. White-bellied crabs, handfuls of pulled apart and falling, like rewinding light, into the wide mouth of an early dust a driven reed blown back into the sand, into the rough roots and gray-black surf. Two. Up the bayou, past smoldering cane fields burnt to their elements, is a crossing where tankers drag three engines backwards down the track. The wheels, groaning objections, move where they don't want to go. Union Pacific, equity, past the citadel of the refineries, dim orange and convents, eternal flame. Rusty points of cypress labor in the foreground. From the sky, the marsh rises like moldy velour, like swatches of work shirts and dungarees floating in an oil slipped wash. Light poles march off into the water. Lakes take over lakes and scant orphans in between. Pastures, ant mounds, and crawfish holes foam green on the gulf's surface, like stick lather around the bathing body. Four. The fishermen anchor at Leeville's sunken graves, cast their lures among broken crypts that stagger down the shoal like brass-plated divers. Seamen crosses, shoulder waves, and wide-mouthed roots pull in a continuous salt spray. As if the dead were neither dead nor living, the living land speckled trout among their empty tombs. If I could dive headlong into the brackish water, a pelican after a fish, if I could forget the sand, its wax myrtle, before they fold back behind the doors of the water, behind the forest primeval, the shrouded oaks watching from their ridge, empty as coast sands, orange and lemon groves sting the air thick with oils. Five. I floated above the priest's head and sat on the marble cornice of a fat Roman column in the nave of Sacred Heart. Like rain on pavement all over the world, we were gray, but stone gray, immovable, unlike the spongy swamp beneath our feet. And handbells cut like filaments, just as translucent and magical. Tie fishing line to anything, tug on it, and things move at your command. Corpus Christi, one flesh but two spirits churning like magnets. We cannot have what we most want, because wanting itself holds us back. Longing occupies the space of our being, the oceanic space, before we were cut free. The court itself is a vapor from the sea, a past tenant's portrait hanging in the hall. Six. If only I could give the land my body. Dig and water fills the pit, not even a foothold before it brims. Someone will lay a plaster vault for me to rise. Like long boxes, children pull down flooded roads. In my plaster boat, I'll ride gulf shores till I vanish like a rig in the sun. If only the land would take me now, I would lie against the marsh grass and sink, muck enfolding me, and welcome the eroding gulf, handful by handful, carrying us away. Who could have known how much the land wants the water to be the water to forget? We carve and sign and plaster our impressions. But then there will be no names, no fierce grip of the undertow along the pier or hiss of barnacles' anxious breathing. I'll imagine us seated at a crab boil, potatoes and onions steaming, orange and blue crabs over orange and blue profane, another Friday in Lent, newspaper and lemon halves, cayenne stinging our nail beds. See, a fog rests over the marshlands, Everything water, nothing outside great and great chaos.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: (laughs) You know, I was reading
0: along with you, and, um, you know, it's funny you find the the notes that you wrote in the book and out to the side of where you said, If I could give the land my body, I wrote, You have. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, through your poetry, you know, it feels in a sense like you have, and through your work, so um, that's a really beautiful poem. Um, And did that sort of come about also as a result of of going around and and looking with people, um, you know, the way that you began to become active in this?
1: Yes, it did, and also reading Simone Weil, the 20th century French philosopher who writes about um, needing... To decreate the ego mm-hmm. um, and so thinking about her and how that plays that plays out in the land, everything I understand spiritually um, is through the through my understanding of the land.
0: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's such a wonderful quote, too, at the beginning. I I read that
1: quote and I was like, okay, this is going to be a great poem. (laughs)
0: Um, (laughs) I love it. But um, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I just noticed over and over and over in the poems and just the most wonderful way is this um, connection between the body and the earth and the body and the land. And it's it's almost like they're siblings, or interchangeable, or, you know, I don't even quite have the language to really say exactly what it is, but it's like, a, um, you know, it sounds cliche to say it's a spiritual connection, but it's it's more than that. It's like a deep, deep uh, empathy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things that I really like the most about the work, um, and I, actually the last poem that I want to have you read, which I'm not going to have you read just yet, because um, I it's called Finishing Touch, it's probably hmm. my favorite poem of yours but it it's also in this poem um at the very end. So um do you have um a few minutes it's, we were supposed to go for half an hour but we could you go for maybe 10 more minutes? Sure. Or, okay, you're not in a rush to get anywhere. Okay, great. So I wanted to ask you I'm really Interested in learning a little bit more About your spiritual or religious Journey um, I, mm-hmm. and I know the Obvious road signs like I know you have a Master's in divinity and you've worked as A chaplain and still do And I see how the divine manifests In your poems but I'd like to hear More about what the journey Has been for you like how did it Start how has it progressed And where do you find
1: yourself currently mm. Well I um the Cajun area I grew up in is almost entirely Catholic. And Cajun mm-hmm. Catholicism, like like Catholicism, takes on the flavor of wherever it is and can be very different. Cajun Catholicism is um, very different. It wasn't doctrinal at all when I was growing up. I never heard um, any of the political hot buttons that we hear today with respect to the church. It was. I grew up post-Vatican II social justice. Um, that was the emphasis. I went to Catholic Elementary School, and that was as far as we could go uh, in my hometown. I went to public school after that. But for me, um, when I left to go to college, I realized that um, I was taking with me some things, of course, that I hadn't noticed before, such as an understanding of of signs and metaphors in terms of sacraments
0: the mm-hmm. Music,
1: the the cadences of the mass, uh, all of these things that I think were really important to me uh, with respect to my interest in poetry and shaping me as a poet. Um, I I can remember too being asked, you know, the church is so you know anti-woman in so many ways. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I was like, absolutely. You know, well, how did you how did you negotiate that? And I said, for me, I was surrounded by the by the images of women. And I, as a child, I didn't distinguish between saints or um, or Jesus. They were just all these um, all these beautiful carvings representing holy people. Um, and so I've also gotten asked in the past, you know, um, um, well, what about the male priest? It's like, yeah, but I didn't pray to him. You know, <laughs> you know, he's just a guy. know he's <laughs> just a guy doing stuff. You know, I was more interested in the, in the, in the statuary and the art. Um, so I think those were profound influences on me. You know what I'm saying it's the cadence of mass and the music and the, um, and the art and the, and the, and the bells, I think really tuned, um, tuned my ear more than anything. um I. Eventually went to went to divinity school because I found myself in New York working on a master's degree in creative writing, and wandering into these lectures. Anything I would go to: sufism, Tibetan Buddhism. It didn't matter what it was. You know, if someone mm-hmm. if if someone was talking about seeking the divine, I went. And at a certain point, one of my professors said, you know, you don't have to study religion on the side. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can actually uh, um, stop studying. Um, this was after my master's, and uh, I started in the Ph.D. program at NYU, and um, really it wasn't for me. You know, all of this uh, mm. theory was not for me. And so my professor said, you know, you don't have to do this, you know, in the, in the shroud of night. You can... Give up on the theory and go study religion. So that's what I, that's what I did. Mm, I think, um, I think working in the hospital has done the same thing for me in terms of encountering different people with different beliefs and, and learning from them. Um, mm-hmm. so where I am now is I'm still, uh, I think I'm still gathering. I'm still gathering.
0: Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you. You know, I have another question, which that, if it goes into uncomfortable territory for you. We can just move along, but um, it kind of relates to the last poem that I want to have you read. Um, because you have um, a Master's in Divinity, you have your Catholic upbringing, and you've studied all these different spiritual traditions, I can't help but wonder what role um, religion and art Um, have played in your perception and experience of sexual orientation? And, you know, especially since you were talking about the church being anti-woman and, um, you know, how has that all played out for you?
1: Well, this is, uh, again, the, the early shaping and the gift of growing up when I did this sort of focus on social justice, I never heard the word homosexuality ever mhm the whole time I was growing up that would not be the case today you know uh unless Francis does quick work and uh, and changes things um so mm-hmm. i did, I really didn't grow up with some um really strong negative message it just mm-hmm. uh, it just kind of was a um was a space there for for me to figure out um now I would say I consider I consider it a great gift because it did uh, it meaning uh meaning my sexuality did sort of um put me on the margins a little bit and um mm-hmm. it's it's really good uh to to be on the margins if you're, you know, wide and middle class. Um, um <laughs> so I, I don't get I don't get you know, I, I don't have the perspective that um that people who are uh, marginalized because of because of race uh or because of um you know uh, serious religious differences i don't have that perspective but i have a little bit of a being out of the mainstream uh, perspective and that seems um a great gift
0: that is a really incredibly beautiful
1: answer. Thank you. Um,
0: would you read the poem Finishing Touch? And sure. I, I'd like to mention also to anyone who's listening that this is the the final poem in the collection Cope Launch, and I think it's just I mean, you can see why it's a perfect ending poem. <laughs> Even the title.
1: Finishing Touch. Ever since the painter depicted your finger extended to your creature We have known we craved a surrogate touch. We press others' palms to our faces as if we were still being molded, polished by an apprentice love revising our rougher destiny. Each hand found more skillful than the last, each imprint closer to your transforming seal. I know this, and still I have to ask for reprieve and illusion to linger in this present flesh, believe in her finishing touch. I want this hand. It's knowing strokes inside my thighs where all betrayal begins. Let this hand complete me for the stretch. The soft edges of these fingers be the last of earth I feel. Let it be her own hand, hers alone, that will close these eyes.
0: Mm, That's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, Again, there's that sameness of urban flesh in this poem that i really love and the, the notion of portrayal um really beautiful um okay so we we we'll just have a few minutes left we can talk so i wanted to ask you um a couple of quick last questions first um stylistically i feel that your books are really similar but thematically your second book is more focused obviously and um is that just the nature of a first book versus subsequent books, or was it important to you to really keep that subject matter tight for The Dirty Side of the Storm?
1: I think The Dirty Side of the Storm reflects an obsession on my part. Um, and if I read Cote Blanche now, I can see that obsession lifting itself. But at the time I was mm-hmm. working on it, um, I didn't see it. Uh, now it's me mm-hmm. where I was headed. Um
0: mm-hmm. And so you is really an obsession. Okay. And so in your forthcoming collection, it'll be sort of a combination. This obsession will continue, but then you're also talking more about your work um, as a trauma chaplain? Yes. Okay, okay, great. That's a wonderful transition between the two. Um, okay, so we, we are about to run out of time, so I wanted to just ask if you have anything. Maybe you can remind us of the title of your forthcoming book and when to look out for that, and if you have any other events or publications coming up that you'd like to announce or a website to direct people to um, if they want to look at a schedule. Um, just anything you kind of want to tell us in closing.
1: Oh, Okay. Um well the forthcoming book is titled the Diener. uh it's pub date is mid march um from l s u press and i'm I'm really excited about it it has a um a beautiful beautiful cover art by michelle burgess if you um if you do go to my website MarthaSurpass.com, um there's links to some more of her work. She's just a really powerful uh bookmaker and um uh, uh sketch artist um and i'll mm-hmm. say i' i'm gonna get to that website soon and put my new calendar up um, my, <laughs> um i'm just terrible um I'm <laughs> terrible it's hard. you're busy <laughs> um, i know i'm gonna i'll get better um i i think that the... The next time I'm reading is the launch, um, the launch for the book, which will be um, in March at Brazos, and I'll put that date up.
0: Okay, so in March at Brazos, are you reading tomorrow at,
1: for the Emily Dickinson um,
0: thing um, out in Congress? I'm reading
1: a Dickinson poem.
0: Okay. Are you? Okay, good. I am. I am. I'll see you there.
1: <laughs> yeah, but so. I looked at my calendar and I thought I'm going to see Melissa the next day.
0: I know, I know. I was just noticing that uh, today, and you'll get to um, meet some other people I want to introduce you to as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but you'll be reading one poem of Dickinson's and one of your own, too. So I look forward to hearing yours. <laughs> Terrific.
1: Well, thank, well, thank you so you. much for this. It was fun. Yeah, thank you.
0: It was. And uh, it's just been great talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. And I'm really, really excited about your new book, and I'm going to keep an eye out on for that too.
1: Well, thanks. I
0: appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Night. Night. Before we close, I'd like to thank producer and associate editor R. J. Jeffries, contributing editor and assistant producer Udo Hentz, and publisher Donna Bear Stein for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. I'd like to also remind our listeners that at our website, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of the Ferret Journal and find out about upcoming events. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the The Ferret Talk book. It's a collection of interviews from the first year of the Ferret Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website, For details about our next interview, please visit the Teferit website. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness,
1: and fulfilling work.